Those are pretty bold words. The resurrected king is resurrecting me. Take some thought for us to unpack that. The, uh, the resurrection was so impactful for the first century Christians that it changed everything about the way that they thought about Jesus, the way they thought about God, the way they arranged their weeks. They began to worship on Sundays because that was the day that Jesus was resurrected. That's the easy part. The second part of that statement, though, says, he's resurrecting me. Now, that takes some thought to get into that. We know that the great resurrection is something that is off in the future when Christ comes again and he gathers us all to be with him. But what it is saying is that the great resurrection has already started, in effect. That one by one, when we come alive to Christ, when we are indwelt by his spirit, that the beginning, the foretaste of what is coming happens in us now. We, we call on people again and again to put your faith in Christ and, and to take that step of fully uh, putting your faith in Him. And it's at that moment when we acknowledge that we are sinners, we turn away from that path, and we turn to Him in faith that we are made alive by the Holy Spirit. And little by little, He makes us more and more aware of this growing life of Christ in us. But it all anticipates something that is yet to come when we are given bodies that are no longer aging, no longer subject to the, uh, the cancers and the, the, you know, the great trials of this day, the Bible says that when we see Jesus next, we will be like him. And, and we look forward to that day. So this is how Christians today express that thought. The resurrected king is resurrecting me. Here's my question. How would Christians have expressed these same thoughts 2,000 years ago, shortly after Jesus rose and shortly after he ascended to the heavens? This morning, we're going to look at Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, and I'd like to give you a foretaste of the message that's coming in a little bit, because part of that, uh, that section of Philippians includes what may be the oldest hymn of the church and the oldest declaration of what we believe about the nature of Jesus. This is from Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 11. Who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a human being, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has exalted him to the highest place and given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now we don't know whether Paul himself wrote those words that in most of our Bibles are set off in poetic language, which is meant to, to show us the, the rhythm of thought that's contained in, in those, or whether this was already a hymn that was written by somebody else and well-known in the church that Paul includes. Uh, we don't know either way, but we do know that by the time that Paul wrote from prison, about A.D. 64, maybe as late as A.D. 65, here only 30 years after 
the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Hymns like this were being sung by the local church. If they were singing it in today's language, they would say, the resurrected king has resurrected me. We're going to celebrate communion on, on those thoughts. John, could you just turn it down a little bit? I'm ringing in the, in the room and I can hear it. Thank you. That helps a lot. Um, we're going to celebrate communion together. It says that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Let's peel off the smaller lid on your communion cup and take that wafer. We're going to eat this together. When we do this, it means that we acknowledge that Jesus has come in the flesh and that he physically died for us. Let's eat in remembrance. Let's peel off the larger layer. It reveals the, the cup. When we drink this, we acknowledge that Jesus shed his blood and that his blood covers our sins once for all time. And we remember. Lord, your victory over sin and death takes the sting away from the way that we remember your suffering and your death on our behalf. There is joy that comes from knowing that you rose from the grave as a resurrected king and that one day you will lift us to, this, to that same status to not only sing about and anticipate the resurrection, but that one day we will participate in the resurrection that fulfills all of your plans, all of your hopes for us. Keep us faithful to them until then. Keep us faithful and full of joy, remembering that our success is tied to you as the victor. So whatever trials may come this week, whatever difficulties may fall upon us, allow us to remember that we are already victors in Jesus. Thank you in his name. Amen. Our scripture this morning is from Philippians chapter 2, one of my favorite passages in the entire Bible uh, for a number of reasons. Paul writes, therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same attitude of mind Christ Jesus had, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a human being, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has exalted him to the highest place and given him the name that is above every name, 
that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Father God, as we gather together today and open your word, I pray that you will give us greater and greater understanding into the beliefs that carried the early church, but also into who your Son is. We worship you, God, through your Son, our Savior, Jesus. We thank you that Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, can reside with each of us day in and day out as we serve him and look forward to meeting him face to face one day. Open our ears and hearts to what you want to say to us and how you want to apply your word to our minds and our hearts and our souls. Continue to allow us to bask in your love, to know the joy of forgiveness, and to be set free to serve you today. In Jesus' name, amen. One of my favorite movies of all times is Remember the Titans. How many of you have ever watched Remember the Titans? A bunch of you have, but some of you haven't. One of the reasons why I consider this a favorite is that many of the football, football scenes actually seem realistic, where the action in many sports movies is just plain hokey most of the time. Uh, a better reason for considering this among my favorites has to do with the way that attitudes change and friendships develop through the shared goals and sacrifice of the team members on this football team. So if you haven't seen it, the, the movie, Remember the Titans, came out in the year 2000, and it is loosely based on the experiences of Coach Herman Boone and the football team at T.C. Williams High School in Alexandria, Virginia. So it's based on a true story. And in this story, uh, a, one all-white high school and another all-black high school were integrated together. The film portrays some of the complexities of this merger through the microcosm of the black and white football players learning to work together and come together under one united team effort when up until that time they had only played on teams that were separated by race. There's one particular line from that movie that I think of often. Early in the football season, the players are not getting along at all. And the two best players on the defense are the two starting defensive ends. Julius, who is African-American, and Jerry, who is white and a team captain. In this particular scene, Jerry scolds Julius for what he perceives is a bad attitude, that he's not giving his best on every play. But Julius calls Jerry out for his hypocrisy, and he adds this great line, Attitude reflects leadership, captain. After this confrontation, Jerry and Julius begin working together, trying to understand each other, having dinner at each other's homes, and eventually they become great friends to the bewilderment of former friends who refuse to share their desire to overcome stereotypes and misconceptions. And then the team goes on to a championship season. They actually were 13-0, were and 0 and they won the state title uh, for high school football in Virginia that year. And... There's turmoil all around them that fills the school while they're having this perfect season in the midst of it. At the end of the film, Jerry lands in a hospital after a bad car accident, and he calls for Julius to be allowed to visit him despite the restrictions that 
Only family are allowed in the hospital room by the, the hospital staff. So Jerry calls out to a nurse who objects, and he points out Julius. He says, don't you see the family resemblance? Julius is my brother. And it's a powerful scene. Now, here's the reason for bringing all of this up. While each of us is ultimately responsible for his own actions and attitudes or her own actions and attitudes, there's a powerful truth behind Julius's pithy maxim. Attitude reflects leadership. I bring this up to you as part of our Identity Check series. A few weeks ago, I explained that we are calling the series Identity Check, Exploring My Identity in Christ. When we read Philippians chapter 2, it almost seems as if the Apostle Paul was anticipating this line from Big Julius. Paul writes, have the same attitude in mind as Christ Jesus had. Yes, as a part of your new identity in Christ, we are to take on the same attitude of Jesus. Or in other words, attitude reflects leadership, Captain Jesus. We're following you. So this is part five of this series, and the title of this message is Our New Attitude. So let me welcome you here this morning. I'm glad that you're here. We're going to explore the attitude of a Christian this morning from a 2,000-year-old document. I'm glad that you're here, whether you're watching online, whether you're in the room. For those of you who are online, I hope that you will do all that you can do to make this something where, where you, are t- you are tuned in and you can put away all the other distractions and really listen and consider what Jesus has to say to us through this part of Scripture. For those of you in the room, thanks for being here this morning. Thanks for the way that you were singing. There was a theme that I noticed that was running through all of those songs, and it has to do with the name of God and the name of Jesus. And we'll find in this same passage that the name of Jesus is lifted up and exalted at the end. And so all of this is a worship experience. What we're learning right now is just sort of the coda to that worship time, and then we'll come back and we'll fill that in with one more great hymn of the church. Now, here's the question that I have this morning that's running behind this message. What attitude is expected of you and me if we are Christians? What attitude does God expect? What attitude does Jesus expect of me? Now, last Sunday, we talked about four confidence factors, and this Sunday's message kind of rests on the foundation of last Sunday. So let me take about 60 seconds and review four main things that we talked about in terms of the confidence that Paul was praying for in chapter 1 of Philippians. Confidence that God has begun a new work in you. So if you have received Christ and and you know him personally, he's begun that new work in you. The second confidence point was the confidence that God will complete what he has started. Philippians 1.6 says that he who has begun a new work in you will be faithful to carry it on and to bring it to completion, and he'll work at it until the day of Christ. The third point of confidence is that we are partners in the gospel, and Paul expresses that he has great joy over this partnership. And the fourth is that we have the confidence that we will continue to abound. We will abound in love, we will abound in fruitfulness that the Lord is producing in all of us. So today's message builds on that foundation. We're going to talk about steps into the attitude of a Christian. Here's number one, first step. Counting our blessings leads to a new attitude. So Paul starts off in the first two verses of chapter 2. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, 
If any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Notice how the structure of these two verses leads toward this new attitude. Paul starts with the word therefore, which means this is a conclusion. That's why I wanted to sum up what we had talked about last week. Because in chapter 1, Paul writes about three things. The, the reasons for a Christian's confidence, that was our theme last week. How Paul's prison chains were actually advancing the gospel movement. And then he gives a challenge to live lives that are worthy of the gospel. Now, Paul builds on these two verses, or builds these two verses around an if-then statement. I don't know if you noticed that in the wording. So this is his logic pattern. If these things are true, then our response should be obvious. So he lays out four ways that our union with Christ blesses us. He says, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if you have any comfort from his love, if you have experienced this common sharing of the Holy Spirit, if you have received any tenderness and compassionate, compassion from the Lord. Now, he's putting this in an, an if-then um, module with the idea that if you're really alive in Christ, if you are really participating in Christ, you're worshiping him, you're reading the scriptures, you're, you're in the midst of worship on a regular basis, that you are being touched in all of these ways by God's work in you. So he's anticipating that we're going to say, yes, I have. I have experienced some of the encouragement of Jesus. I have experienced comfort from his love. I have experienced this common sharing of the Holy Spirit as I learn from my brothers and sisters who are growing around me. Yes, I have received tenderness from the Lord. He forgives me. He welcomes me despite all the ways that I mess up again and again. So the if part of this is developing the habit of counting your blessings. That's what Paul was doing here. He was counting the blessings that we commonly experience. This is something that we need to do on a regular basis. One of the best ways when you get discouraged to work your way out of that is to start counting the ways that the Lord has already blessed your life. Think long and hard when you get down about the past blessings that God has given you. When was the last time the Lord put someone in your life who encouraged you? When was the last time that the Lord's comforting presence surrounded you? Perhaps when you're going through a sad time or a season of loss. When was the last time that you sensed a common bond with another Christian? I had that experience a week ago. I was on a plane from Chicago back to Boston, and I sat down, and, and the guy next to me says, hey, you, you know, where are you headed? I said, home. I said, I'm headed home too. And it was just one of those things where we started to talk, and it turns out he was an elder in a church in New Hampshire. And for the entire flight home, we talked about all kinds of issues that were going on in his church, and he was picking my brain about what we're learning at, at, at North River. And before I knew it, we were landing and we never stopped talking. It was a wonderful thing. Well, that was one of those things that God did where for the sake of encouragement, he planted two Christians next to each other who found out that even though we've never known each other, we had all these things in common and we're building each other up. I'm walking out of the airport and my phone pings and there's a LinkedIn invitation from this guy saying, hey, I want to further the conversation. God does stuff like that for us. There are blessings that come as a direct, direct result of being part of God's family. 
the then part of the equation that it leads to Paul's challenge. He says, then make my joy complete by being like-minded. In chapter 1, Paul talked about his joy over the church's partnership in the gospel. And now that joy is brought to a higher level as these Christians experience unity being like-minded. You know what he's saying? You can ruin the partnership in the gospel if we don't learn how to work together and experience unity over the things that we have in common. And the partnership can become a tough slog if it's not accompanied by like-mindedness, unity in the Spirit. Okay, so the first step into the attitude of a Christian is learning to count our blessings. Here's the second, adopting the habits of like-mindedness. So verses 2, 3, and 4. Then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Here, Paul lists a number of habits, five habits of like-mindedness. Habit number one, having the same love. Habit number two, being one in spirit and mind. Habit number three, avoiding selfish ambition or vain conceits. Habit number four, practicing humility. And number five, looking after the interests of others rather than your own or before your own. Paul was describing how a church becomes a unified fellowship. It doesn't mean that we all agree on everything in life. We're certainly not all going to agree on politics. Certainly not this year in an election year, right? But there are a number of things that are far greater than that and far more eternal than politics will ever be. And Paul was describing the way that we do this. So, we prioritize acting in love, which flows from the love that the Lord lavishes on us. We work at operating in unity, which flows from a shared mission and vision together as a church. We set aside selfish pursuits, and that ability to do that flows from self-awareness. And we practice the trait of humility, which requires thinking highly of other people first. And then we develop the habit of looking after the interests of others first. I love seeing that slide when Sherry was doing announcements, sometimes announcements or ministry. And she talked about the the go team packing stuff that's going to be sent over to Ukraine. I instantly thought, I want to be there for that. You know, there's one way that we can practice the habit of looking after other people's interests rather than our own. We've got it good here. We're all doing relatively well compared to most of the world and especially that part of the world. And I instantly thought, I want to be a part of that. If you're looking for a way to get your hands dirty for Jesus, sign up for that. Get involved. So these are wonderful traits. And a natural question arises here. How far do we take these habits? You know, are these a minor part of our lives? Are these major parts of our lives? So Paul leads to the next thought. It's as if he he anticipates our question. And here's the next challenge he gives then. Consider the mindset of Jesus. Oh, that's how far he wants me to go. Consider Jesus as the model. Verse 5. In your relationships with one another, have the same attitude of mind Christ Jesus had. Paul answers our question 
by challenging us to consider the attitude of Jesus. A recent version of the New International Version, which we most often use here, says, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. An older version says, have the same attitude of mind of Christ Jesus. The New King James Version translates that, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. However you cut that, the same concept comes through, that we are to adopt the mindset of Jesus as our operating manual for life. The key to developing the five habits we just looked at as, uh, as we we're talking about adopting these habits of like-mindedness starts with the mind. So Paul tells us to adopt the mindset we see in Jesus. Then he describes this mindset of Jesus that is on display throughout his mission. And we see this in four stages that are in that wonderful poetic section that I read during communion and then just a moment ago. Stage one is where Jesus was giving up status. And so we model his behavior in that way by giving up status. It says that he naturally shared equality with God in being very God himself, but he was willing to give up recognition and status for our sake and leave the comfort zone of heaven to come down into our world to take on the mission that the Father gave him. Stage two is adopting a humble identity. As Jesus did this, so we are to do this as well. In every way, he took on the appearance and form of a human being. Now, that sounds quite natural for you and me, but for him, that was a huge step down for the creator to become part of the created. And in doing this, he embraces the very nature of a servant. Stage three is adopting humility and sacrifice. He became obedient unto death, and not just death, meaning physically dying, but death on a cross, a shameful punishment that was only reserved for enemies of the state who were to be humiliated by Rome. Jesus did that so that it would become visible that he was paying for our sins once and for all. But then comes stage four, exaltation by God. And so Jesus is lifted up. His name will be honored above all names. Every knee will one day bow before him. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings and the Son of God. And one day we'll be there to see that when the whole world bows before Jesus. What can we learn about the way of Jesus? Oh, there's so much in these poetic stanzas of this early hymn of the church, perhaps even earliest hymn of the church. Let me just point out four lessons that we can pull out of there for ourselves today. Here's number one. With Jesus, the way up is down. I, I didn't make that up. Many preachers have used that thought over the years. But rather than climbing up, we see that Jesus' path toward success is to continually lower himself. And in taking the lowest place, he serves all and waits for God to raise him up. Lesson number two, Jesus dignified humility. In his book, Humilitas, John Dickerson makes the case that prior to Jesus, humility was seen by the Greek and Roman cultures as weakness. It was always a sign of weakness. Humility was despised by those cultures. But the concept of humility has mostly been seen as a positive reality since the time of Christ. 
The fascinating thing today is that people in the business world start writing about humility as a key trait of top-notch executive leaders. Do you know something that never would have come about unless they were listening to people from the church? Because it's Jesus who elevated that concept. Third, Jesus elevated the role of the servant. In any culture that embraces a class system, servants have always been beneath the upper class, the ruling class, the powerful class. And Jesus taught the high value of serving others. He came to serve, not to be served. And he calls his followers to be known for serving others. And then one fourth lesson from the way of Jesus. Jesus served not despite being God, but because he was in nature God. Now, in the Greek language that begins this poetic section of Philippians chapter 2, there's one word that the way we interpret it triggers the way that we understand the rest of it, especially this puzzle. It's the word being that shows up. It's an action verb. And the question is, is it something that is oppositional, like despite being in very nature God, Jesus served, or is it a causal participle? I believe it's the latter, that because Jesus was in very nature God, he revealed the heart of our God who serves his people and that he served because he was in very nature God. He served, the, we, we discovered something about God in that process, God the Father, that it's in his nature to serve others. We see that as he served the human race by creating the world in all of its splendor and all of its provisions. A moment ago, we sang about Jehovah Jireh, and you're probably wondering, what are all these Hebrew words in our worship song? Jehovah Jireh is the title that Abraham gave to the Lord when he took his son Isaac up to the top of the mountain, and all of a sudden there was a ram who was caught in the thicket. And an angel of the Lord said, Abram, don't harm your son. Take that ram and sacrifice it himself. And, and Abram gives the, the name to God or the title to God that day, Jehovah Jireh, meaning the Lord who provides. Our God is a provider. He's always been doing that. And he reveals that even most closely in Jesus. And God served our spiritual needs in sending Jesus. So, here's the big idea for this morning. Having the mind of Jesus leads to humility and service, not self-exaltation. Having the mind of Jesus leads us to humility and service, not exaltation or self-exaltation. We can leave that up to God, and in the right time and the right way, He will honor us however He chooses. But if we're following Jesus, we choose the path of humility, we choose the path of service, and we watch God work through the means that He has ordained. All right, in conclusion today, I asked Dave Bailey if um, he would be willing to consider uh, a hymn that I happen to love. For those of you who are hymn lovers and who regularly ask me, when can we sing a hymn? You better sing out today, okay? <laughs> but this is a, an old hymn that some of you may or may not know. It's called, May the Mind of Christ My Savior. It's a hymn written by a British songwriter, writer, Kate Wilkinson, first published 99 years ago in 1925. When Sue and I were graduating from Wheaton College in Illinois, our entire class was assigned the project of memorizing this song. So Wheaton's a Christian college. And the last thing that we did as a class, 500 of us, at the conclusion of graduation, was to sing this song. I can't tell you how many times 
I have thought back to that moment and to the words of this song. Let me just read some of them to you. May the mind of Christ my Savior live in me from day to day by his love and power controlling all I do and say. May the word of God dwell richly in my heart from hour to hour so that I may see I triumph only through his power. May the peace of God my Father rule my life in everything that I may be calm to comfort sick and sorrowing. May the love of Jesus fill me as the waters fill the sea, him exalting, self-abasing, this is victory. May I run the race before me, strong and brave to face the foe, looking only unto Jesus as I onward go. So I'm going to invite you to stand and uh, follow along. Learn the hymn if you don't know it. If you do know it, sing it out with gusto. May the mind of Christ my Savior live in me from day to day.
up today. Have a great week. <laughs>